So we've been going through different passages that deal with leadership in the church and, and God's kingdom, and today we're talking about the work of preaching. So it is a bit weird to preach on preaching, but nevertheless, such is the passage, and there's two key ideas that come out of our passage, and I'll just give those to you up front. The first is that the teaching of God's word, inclu- including the proclamation of the gospel, are central to the work of pastors. Pastors preach the Bible, preach the Word. And then the second aspect is is about that, is that doing the work of ministry is a lot like running a race. And so Paul uses that metaphor towards the second half of the passage. So it'll be no surprise to you that when I see a pastor or preacher and TV or the movies, I, I perk up. And I'm like, what is this saying about pastors? You know, what, what message are they trying to get across? What, in a sense, it's how does the world say a pastor or preacher? What, what do they say they should be like? So there's an older movie where uh, Mr. Bean plays a pastor, a preacher, and it's, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it called Keeping Mum. But the gist of it is, he's really boring. And, and the, the whole idea is, he learns to tell jokes as part of his sermon, and that's a good thing. So, so okay, that's one part of, you know, what the world says, pastors shouldn't be boring. And that very same theme is caught up in a particular Simpsons episode. Now, I know some of you out there, like, because I know in the 1990s, preachers railed against the Simpsons as the worst thing ever on TV. Now we know there's a lot more worse things. But I'll I'll just say this in defense of the Simpsons. There's no TV family that spends more time in church than the Simpsons family. And they have a, they actually have the church as a theme quite often. And so one of them is an episode where was one of my favorite characters, the Reverend Lovejoy. And he is, he is the most boring preacher ever. And he's always, we will now read from Leviticus. And they, they poke fun at boring preachers. And in this particular episode, he's so boring, the bishop comes in and brings in a, a, a younger assistant who is going to do some of the preaching. And this young assistant comes in, and he's much more entertaining. In fact, all he does is quote movies. Can you believe it? <laughs> and so he, he even convinces Homer to become a deacon, you know, because he's so much more entertaining. And, you know, I won't tell you the whole plot, but it comes out in the end. Reverend Lovejoy saves the day, and... The, the young assistant is, is, uh, fails. So, so they affirm the boring preacher after all. But, but here's, so the point I want to take from this is, though, is when pastors or preachers show up in movies, they're saying they, they, they want them to be entertaining, relevant, right? They're speaking things that, today, and uplifting. And in other words, I, I mean, I get it, right? That, when I would show up at a church, you know, before as a pastor, I, I kind of want the same things. You don't want dry, outdated, and gloomy sermons about sin all the time. You want things that will, will be these. 
So here's my response, and it's in light of our passage today, is if you aim at those three things, if that's your focus, I'm going to come in and be entertaining, relevant, and uplifting, you will end up missing out on the faithful preaching of God's Word. But if you truly engage with God's Word, if you teach what God has given to us in His Word, and you work to bring out that message in a way with knowledge of your congregation, your audience, you'll find that the Word of God truly is interesting. It engages the mind when you see what God has given us in His Word. And, and moreover, you'll find out that it matters. That this is not irrelevant. That it actually matters to life in our world today. It's not just for ancient history. And moreover, you'll find not so much uplifting, you'll find that it will, it will feed your soul. Right? There is a, a soul message within this that's far better than the entertainment that the world offers. That's my, con- that's my conjection. You have to decide for yourself whether that's, that's, that's right. So in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is exhorting young Timothy to preach the word, to teach the scriptures is part of the calling that he has. And Paul had sent him to the, the city of Ephesus. And, and so he's, he's saying, this is what you're called to do when you get there. The passage is actually one of the most common read at the ordination of pastors and preachers. I, I looked back. I looked up my, the ordination service for me back in 2006, and this passage was read. There are other past scriptures as well, but this one was read. I think it's been at every ordination service I've been a part of. And, and so before I get to the passage itself, though, I want to I say that Paul sets it up in the verses right before it. And it's helpful to look at those. So right before chapter 4 and chapter 3, um, it talks about all Scripture is God-breathed and, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, all these things. It really gives three reasons why the preaching of God's Word is central to the work of ministry. Three reasons why. First is... Scripture is God-breathed, meaning it's God's intentional communication to, to mankind. God wants to speak to you. He wants to communicate with you. And his chosen means of doing that, in a broad sense of humanity, his chosen way of doing that is by giving us the Scriptures, the Bible, the record of his dealings with mankind and, and the Jewish people in specific. And then later, how, how that came about. So, so now, now, the Bible's not handed down on golden tablets from heaven. It's not, it's not dictated to us by angels. God brought the Bible into being through, through men and, and sometimes women who, who heard God and interacted with God and then wrote down what happened. So he, he brings the Word of God through human beings, but nevertheless... It is God's communication to us. He wants, he wants us to read and study and meditate so that we can hear from him. The second reason is, is simple. He says to Timothy in 3, says, you, you've known these scriptures since you were a little one because you know that they would make you wise for salvation. The Bible gives us 
the, the good news of salvation, what we call the gospel, the underlying message of the gospel is the good news that even though we failed to live up to God's calling upon us, even though every human being has fallen short of what, we, what God wants from us, God has made a way to, to know him, to, to come back to him, to, to live with him for eternity. And that is through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to give his life on a cross. So, so within the Bible is the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus coming and laying down his life that we might have forgiveness and grace and become a, have a new life in him. So, so it's God's intentional communication. It is, is how we become wise for salvation. And then the third reason, it says, because it's useful for learning how to live a life where we follow Jesus Christ. It says the scriptures are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? He gave us this, not, you know, now that once we have salvation, to learn how to follow Christ, follow along, how to build our life on it. Okay, so given those three things, it totally makes sense then why Paul would say to Timothy what he says, right? Given these three things, what, what does God need? God needs servants and, and his ministers who will preach and teach the word to God's people, to the people of God and bring out the truths that are buried within it, that are, are from this. So, in 1 Timothy 4, he begins with a charge to Timothy. He says, this work you need to do, and you will be held account for, for doing it. Right? So verse 1, he doesn't even get to what the, the task is yet. He says, this is, this is what you're going to be held accountable for before God, because God sees how you live your life and how you do, do what you do. He says you'll be held accountable for, for Jesus, Christ Jesus, because he's actually the one who will judge the living and the dead. God has set Jesus, our son, to be the one who, who judges us, and I'm so glad it is because Jesus is full of grace and mercy. And, and so, but he's the one who will judge our work and the work in the kingdom. And then the last part of this, this first one is that the return. Because Jesus one day will come back. He, he right now is seated with the Father in heaven and ruling his kingdom from heaven. But one day he will bring that kingdom to earth and he will hold account those who he's called into his service. So, so I charge you in the presence of God, like that's, that's what Paul's saying. So knowing all this, what is Timothy to do? Verse 2, preach the word. The core command, followed by three uh, phrases on how to do that core command. The core command is preach the word. I believe Paul says it the way he does on purpose because it conveys two aspects. One is teaching the scriptures, right? Part of, part of preaching is teaching. It's helping people understand the, the written scriptures, the Bible, to bring out its truths, to see and understand what God has put within it. But, it, but, it, but there's more to it. Preach the word. You see, in the gospel, we know that the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. So when Paul's saying preach the word, he's saying make sure 
that your preaching the word became flesh, that Jesus Christ is the center of that word. You are to make known the gospel in your preaching. You see, if you're preaching the Bible just as law, just as here's what you need to do, um, you know, here are the instructions, follow this, you are missing something. You are missing out on the, the key part is that the word became flesh. You're not preaching the true word. In, in, uh, when he was on earth, Jesus, Jesus spoke to the guys who were the Bible teachers, the Pharisees and scribes. He says, you guys know the word, but you don't realize I'm standing right here. And you're, you're misunderstanding the word because you, you don't see who I am. One of my favorite little parables that Jesus gave, and it's just a really a two-verse parable. He's talking to the crowd, and he, he says, have you understood all the things I'm teaching you? He says, yeah, yeah, we understand. Well, they didn't really understand. But, um, but he said to them, every scribe, which is a Bible teacher, it's, it's, you know, anyone who's teaching the Bible, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, and trained for the kingdom of heaven means they've been trained in the, the knowledge of the gospel, the, way, the kingdom that Jesus now is. The, the, so, so someone who's a Bible teacher who, who adds to that, the, the understanding of the gospel message, that person is like someone who goes into his house and brings out treasures new and old. So that's, that's what I, I see my task the task of a preacher, is to go in, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, you're bringing out treasures. Hey, take a look at this. Let me show you this passage and what it means and how it points ahead to the Savior who would come. And, and to, uh, one of the things I've fast, become fascinated with as I read the Old Testament is more and more I see how it was pointing ahead to the Savior who would come. Even in some of the passages that seem mo- so obscure. And I love... I love doing that, that, that you, you find things, oh, this is showing us what Christ is like, bringing out treasures new and old. So, preach the word, and then, and then so, so how do you preach the word? Well, it says, uh, be ready, in season and out of season. The be ready has the word, take a stand on it, is what it's saying, right? And, and so, I was... My original sermon title for the sermon was In Season and Out. Um, I switched that a little bit because the idea of it is this. Sometimes when you preach, you're going to get a what? Amen, pastor. I know Phil's no longer with us. I, you know, he was our main guy. Sometimes Dan will do that now. Um, I, I had a guy at my last church who he just he had that back. Amen, pastor. Because sometimes people will hear it and they love it. Right? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's when it's in season. You're preaching stuff that people want to hear. And there are times, right, that that's, that's true. But sometimes what you're preaching is out of season. It's not going to be received so warmly. Note what it says next. Admonish, rebuke, and encourage or exhort. Sometimes what you're preaching is not going to be necessarily what people were hoping to hear. And it's going to be challenging. It might be a rebuke. From God's word to them. <laughs> I heard someone tell me, oh, that, you know, when I was coming or uh, starting as a preacher, he says, they really like preaching that re- 
boldly rebuked people. And then I realized what they meant is that, they, that I boldly rebuked other people. Because as soon as I said something that offended them, they walked away. Remember, judgment begins with the house of God, right? God, God is more concerned about refining and purifying and dealing with the, the crap amongst his people than he is with the crap out there. And yes, there's a lot of crap out there. I get it. But um, judgment begins with the house of God. So, so we have these three phrases. In season, be ready in season and out of season. We got the, uh, you know, reprove, rebuke, exhort, or admonish and rebuke. But, but then he makes sure he adds this third part, with complete patience and teaching. <laughs> so as a pastor, you got to be careful because the, the preacher's not the judge. Right? You teach what God says and let the hand grenades fall where they will. Right? I, you know, you got to make sure it's not my words, but his word explained. And sometimes, maybe if you've been offended, you got to ask, are you offended by me? Or are you really taking issue with what God has said? With something that's in God's word? I want to think more about this in season and out, though, because it's this idea that's been in my mind. And I remembered something a homiletics professor said way back when, when I was, before I was even ordained, was training for ministry. His main point was uh, preach the whole counsel of God, the entire counsel of God. And what he meant by that was preaching broadly from the Bible, not just your favorite passages. Don't just pick out the things you want to teach on and you're excited to teach on. You need to preach the things, in season and out of season, that may, you, may, you may not be drawn to teach on. There are some passages like, oh, what do I say about this, right? But, but it's, it's God's Word. So there are truths in it you can bring out. So, so how do preachers do that? How, how do we make sure you're not just pulling out the stuff you want to say and you're teaching broadly, you're the whole counsel of God? There's one technique that we don't use, but, but it's called lectionary preaching. And those who maybe come from a, a, a more formal type of church would be familiar with, the lectionary is a set of readings that covers the whole Bible in three years. And in certain churches, I know Lutherans are really big on this. Um, they, they would have these readings, and so the pastor was expected to preach on at least one of those passages in their sermon rather than picking what they want. So it forced the pastor to preach through the diversity of Scripture. And so that's, that's the advantage of it. When I was going through the ordination process, I actually came from a different denomination where most of the pastors preached the lectionary. And they were a bit put off when I said, no, I don't intend to do that. Um, I, the, the different, another method for doing that is to try to preach um, through various books of the Bible. That you, you don't just pick out randomly, oh, this is what I want to preach on. Or topically, you don't just pick topics you want to talk about. But that you, you vary the, the, the different genres of Bible books that you do. So that's kind of how I've attacked that or approached that. 
is I try to make sure I'm not just only preaching from the, the Gospels or only preaching from Paul's letters or only preaching the New Testament or Old Testament, is you'll notice I do go back and forth. Um, and I occasionally do a topical series because I think that enables me to, to draw from different books of the Bible, such as the very one we're in, where we're talking about leadership in the kingdom. And the other thing, just, just so you know how I operate, sometimes if you pick one book of the Bible and you're really preaching through it exegetically, you're going to be in that book for like two years. So I, I don't know if that's always wise either. So I will do parts of a book. So one of my series I did is John 14, 15, and 16. And that, that, that's about a 10 to 12-week series. Uh, and actually, my next one is going to be just one chapter, Matthew 25. We're going to look at three parables in that, 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 that chapter. So that's how I try to resolve this, is to make sure that I'm not just drawing the things I want to preach on, but am preaching the whole counsel of God. The other way is, uh, the word I use is exegetical. It means that the text sets the direction of the message. Now, sometimes that could be going through it verse by verse, such as this sermon. Or other times, you might go through the passage, and, it, and then it leads you to other passages and other topics around it, but still, the, the text you use sets the direction of the message. That's an exigen- It's out of the text, not out of your own things. The danger for preachers is to, instead of preaching God's wisdom, God's word, you can end up preaching your own wisdom and giving your own good advice on how to live and how to do these things. Verses 3 and 4 expands upon that idea of in season and out of season. So let me reread this again. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Isn't it amazing? Like, that doesn't feel like it was written 2,000 years ago. That felt like it was written last week. Right? The time is coming when it will be like this. But I guess it's always been thus. Right? There's always been teaching that people will try to get people to say what they want. The, The general truth is people love to have their views affirmed. They love to have teaching or preaching or news sources that say what they already know and, and that just, you know, you court, it feels good. Oh, they're, they're saying what I love to hear. I think that's a, a, a challenge for the news industry, that they're breaking off, that people are only listening to the news sources that will tell them what they want to hear. And they, those news sources now found if they, if they tell the whole story, that people get mad and tune them out. So they'll only, they'll only give you the part of the news you want to hear rather than giving a broad view. Um, the same thing can happen in, in church ministry. Rather than sit under preaching that might rebuke, correct, or train people, that a preaching that doesn't necessarily affirm them every time they walk in the doors, people say, well, I can go to YouTube and pick out whatever preacher I want. And they can be entertaining, and I can sit in my living room and listen to them rather than subject themselves to preaching that might challenge or rebuke them. 
good preaching from God's word will rebuke because that's what God's word does. At a recent pastor's conference, it was the, the Four C's annual gathering this summer. The, the main speaker, I don't remember his name, but he's a conservative evangelical pastor in the Four C's. He said this. He says, beware. Your people are being discipled by Fox News. Because they spend more time listening to that. It's always in the background. And if you, you know, those voices that they hear all the time are shaped by what they hear, and there ain't no change in them. It says, beware of that. A specific, now you could say the same, for some people it might be MSNBC, right? They're being just as discipled by that news as well. Russell Moore, longtime Southern Baptist pastor, who now, he inter- he's actually Christianity Today head editor, um, but he's heard from other pastors who got blowback from teaching certain scriptures. And the, the one he specifically cited was Matthew 5, where Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. And, you know, and, and those preachers would, would have those thing, and, and people would come back and say, hey, quit preaching on that liberal stuff. And when the pastor would say, it's, it's what Jesus taught. It's in the Bible. I'd say, well, well, yeah, that was fine back then. You know, they had it easy back then. They, it's not like today. I'm like, Jesus had it easy in preaching? Didn't they crucify him? Right? Like, like it's, yeah. So, so the whole idea, the funny thing is, to me, is it, it, they're saying God's word is outdated and irrelevant which is what you used to hear from the left, that, you know, oh, the scriptures, those are outdated and irrelevant. Now you're hearing it from both sides. So, given that, verse 5, given that people are going to look out for teaching that affirms them, it says, as for you, always be sober-minded. What do you think he means by that? Keep your head about you. Don't get caught up in the spirit of the age. Know know what your people are hearing and the voices that are motivating them, but make sure you stay grounded in God's word and not get caught up in those same, same things. That's what I'm hearing when I hear be sober minded. And then it says, endure suffering. Another version said, brave hardship. Don't expect it to be easy and smooth. I think another translation could be, man up. Right? This ain't going to be easy, so get ready for it. Brave hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. I want to come back to this. I said it before, but keep in mind your core calling is to make known the good news about Jesus. That's what an evangelist, the, the word evangel is gospel. So an evangelist is simply one who proclaims the good news about Jesus. Don't, don't get so, uh, don't let that be forgotten in your teaching of God's word that, that it should bring good news because I know any, at any given Sunday, people could show up and, and they're feeling the weight of conviction or they're feeling like 
you know, that they are worthless and they need to hear Jesus Christ loved you so much. He gave his life for you and you could seek him here and now. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear that, right? I, maybe you know you've messed up and you've sinned. I want you to hear that in Jesus Christ there's forgiveness. Always do the work of an evangelist. And then fulfill your ministry. So just some word issues. The word ministry, servanthood, and the Greek word diakonia, are, it's all the same thing. Ministry, to be a minister, is to be a servant. And in fact, in, yeah, it's used in different settings. So, so in Acts 6, I think that got referred to somewhere. In Acts 6, the disciples are, are expanding those who are leaders within the church, and they talk about, though, they add, when they add deacons, the word deacon, diaconate, is diaconia, it's service. They're adding deacons who will um, do the, the service of waiting on tables, of, of feeding the widows, right, of spreading bread. But they, they also say there's also a, diacon, a diaconia of the word, the ministry of teaching the word. So you have those who serve bread, and then you have those who, through the teaching of God's word, serve the bread of life. Both of them are diakonia, service to God. And so fulfill your ministry. Do that work. So that's the challenge to Timothy. And then the last three verses, Paul then turns, cites his own work, um, as an example of, of for Timothy. So each of these three verses, I think, are just interesting. And, and it's, so verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Scholars believe that Paul is writing this, or is certainly writing this, under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial by Caesar. And we know that one day he will be executed by Caesar, beheaded. And so he knows that. Right? When he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, he's picturing a, a sacrifice where you pour out. And, he, and he's given his life as a sacrifice to God in the ministry he's done. He says, my ministry now is going to be poured out. My departure is, is at hand. Jesus used the same language the night before his death. So Paul believes or knows you know, it's about, this could be the last letter that Paul wrote overall. Um, so that's verse 6. And then in verse 7, it says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Oh, what a great verse. I have fought the good fight. Now, I want you to understand, the word fight in there. Is, is compete. It is not the language of combat or war. He's not talking about fighting your human enemies. He's talking about the, 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 the competition, athletic competition. Right? If, if any of you are runners, I know, I know we have some runners in here, maybe at least one up in the balcony, right? Cross-country runners. <laughs> so if any, of you are, if any of you do that, you know... What are you fighting against? You're fighting your own body, your own, your own temptation to stop running the race because it's hard. And when you're running, you're, right, you're, 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 that's what it means. That's what he's talking about. I've fought the good fight. 
I didn't stop when it got hard. I kept running the race to the, to the finish. I've kept to the course, right? I didn't let the distractions of this world get me off course in this race. Um, and, and ultimately then, why? Because he knows what he's looking forward to. Verse 8, where it says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I brought the, the crown. This is, not, this is not the crown of a king. It is the victor's wreath. Because he's run the race, he knows that one day will come and he will stand before the Lord. Right? The Lord will return. And he will stand before the Lord. And there's a parable in Jesus that, that says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Come now and share the master's happiness. That's what this is. Right? Paul is looking forward to that day. He wanted to serve with all his heart so that, that when that day comes, that's what he will hear from, from the Father, from the Lord. Um, and he's urging Timothy to keep in mind that same vic victorious crown, the victor's wreath, um, knowing that one day, too, he will, will stand. It says, but, but it's not just to Timothy, right? It says, to all who has loved his appearing. Meaning to all who are look, looking forward to that day when your life is evaluated, as you stand before the Lord. This is not about gaining salvation. We gain salvation by His grace. But it's about the evaluation of our life's work. And what will we hear? And, and we, will, we will stand before the Lord and, and, and we will offer Him what came out of our life. And it will be revealed. Did we use the time that God gave us to accumulate more and more possessions for ourselves? Did we use the time he gave us to live in luxury and ease? Did, he, did we use the time he gave us to seek achievement and notoriety within this world? Or did we use the time he gave us to serve, to lift up the name of Christ, to advance the gospel? Did we live our life to glorify our Lord and point people to Jesus Christ and his goodness? It's the idea of a race. Right? Did we run the race? It's not a sprint. It's a race for a lifetime. It is a marathon. Right? That's, that's what Colossians 3.23 says. This is not just for ministers. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So it's, it's, it's not just whatever occupation. Maybe you're, you know, if you're in ministry, fine. But whatever work you, you have to do, you can invest your life in serving the Lord and bringing glory to Christ. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Here and now, you could say, Lord, I want my life to serve you and honor, honor you. And the picture he gives of that is running a race. Not a sprint. I know, I know we have sprinters in our midst. It's more like a, a long race, even a cross-country, or even a marathon. So, 
some of you back there will find this interesting because we talked about marathon running in our, our Sunday school class today over, over there. But I ran a marathon once. I know that may be hard to believe, but I brought the shirt to prove it. I found this. It's still in my drawer. There you go. So just to, to verify, I was young and foolish, and uh, I only did it once. Uh, but it was the Toledo Marathon, Toledo, Ohio, and I had to do it because my younger brother did one. And he had run the Columbus Marathon in the fall, so I'm like, oh, I can't be shown up by him. So I started training, and I, I was already in distance running at the point, but I, I, uh, I was in pretty good shape. I trained pretty hard. Trained for a year, kept increasing my distance, uh, but 26 miles is a long, long way. And I remember when the day had come, started well, felt strong, and I for those who are runners, I, I was even doing an eight-minute mile clip the first, first 10 miles. So I, I, was, I was going pretty good. Um, and then around halfway, 13 miles, I, I started to feel it. <laughs> like, and I, a, a, every time after that, like, I got slower and slower. Um, and my goal was to just keep going. And I remember it just kept hurting. And, and you see each, they put like a little number at each mile, and I'm like, is that all the farther I've gone? Like, oh my gosh. And, and, and I share this because this is a metaphor, right? Because it's, it's the, the, the work of serving the Lord. At times, serving the Lord will feel like, like that, right? That it's, it, at times it'll feel easy and you'll feel strong in it. And at the beginning of the race, the, the, all the people were clumped together. And I remember laughing and joking around as you run together because you've, you've trained hard enough that you could do that while you run and it was joyful and that was great but then there will come other times when when it's hard and you're fighting your own body to keep going to not wanting to quit and everything in you gets to the point where you want to quit by 18 miles um i every everything had stretched out i didn't see any people along the route i like i Hardly at all. I was running alone. Sometimes serving God is running alone. Um, but you just got to keep going. And I remember at 20 miles, I'm like, can I do this? Can I go that much more? And I kept edging on. And at 23 miles, when I, I had trouble imagining going three more miles, I saw something. Someone up ahead jumping up and down and waving. And there was my younger brother, Matt. Because he had run the race previously. He knew that at, at that point of the race, I, I would want to quit. I'd want to stop going. So he met me. He backtracked the, the last three miles. And there he jogged with me that last part of the race. Um, I would say he jogged really slowly as I... <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he just kept, you know, talked to me, encouraged me, kept me going all the way to the finish. I share this to say, we all have a brother who has already run the race, who's faced everything that we are going to face, who's faced the, the suffering, the challenges of life in this world. And that brother will meet us at our lowest points. 
at the points when we want to give up and stop running. He will meet us and, and carry us and, and go with us to the end as we walk with him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you want to be able to say what Paul has said? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, I thank you that that you have not left us to run this race completely on our own, but that you meet us, you run with us, that your spirit dwells within our hearts if we've, as we've put our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And so even when we feel alone, we are not alone because you are in us, you are with us. And may our lives more and more reflect the Lord who lives with us. May our, 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 our time, our, our service to you bear fruit as, as it encourages others to learn about you, Jesus. And may the name of Jesus be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in, in his name. Amen.